We're in Acts chapter 3 tonight, continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3. On March the 19th, 2003, Lieutenant Colonel Tim Collins of the British Army delivered a tremendous speech to his troops just hours before they moved out of Kuwait to begin the liberation of Iraq. It's since become known as the Eve of Battle speech, and it's been compared to the Gettysburg Address, other great orations of history. It's said that a copy of it once hung in the Oval Office, that it moved Prince Charles to tears, and English school children still study it in classrooms. Remarkably, no audio or video exists of the delivery. What's been preserved was taken down quickly in shorthand by a lone journalist as the speech was given. Even more remarkable is the fact that this great speech was extemporaneous. Colonel Collins delivered it off the cuff. If you get a chance to read it, and I suggest you do, just go to Wikipedia and either look up Tim Collins or Eve of Battle speech. Uh, If you read it, you'll find it to be rousing, full of gravity, and it's moving. Collins, speaking to a very specific audience, talks of the coming liberation effort, the cost it would take to carry it out, the duty of his soldiers to follow their marching orders. He tells them to act decisively, yet with grace. He makes several powerful references to the Old Testament, invoking Abraham, Eden, Cain. He speaks of mercy for those who surrender and the awesome power of their regiment. Though it's hard not to be stirred up when you read the words on the page, it was reported that not everyone who heard the speech that day were that excited about it. A captain in the audience reported in a book that he wrote that some of the listeners became, quote, demoralized when they heard it, that it was all a little too much reality. The similarities between the eve of battle speech and the text before us tonight are many. After healing a crippled man, Peter and John have entered into the temple complex, and a crowd quickly forms, and Peter will give the second recorded sermon of the church age. It wasn't prepared, it wasn't planned, it was given extemporaneously, and it was given to a very specific audience, the people of Israel. In this speech, Peter will talk about the gravity of their situation, he'll talk about God's effort to liberate mankind and restore this world from a vicious enemy. He references the Old Testament, even invoking Abraham. He'll point out their duty as Israelites to follow the orders of their God. This short speech has been immortalized through history, studied by young and old alike, as we are studying it this evening. But as with the eve of battle speech, though many would be powerfully roused by it, in the biblical case, giving their lives to Jesus Christ, not everyone in the audience will take so kindly to what they're hearing. The leaders of the temple will have Peter and John arrested, though many others will be saved. We'll find that Peter's sermon here is particularly Jewish, but that doesn't stop us Gentiles from applying its powerful thrust to our own relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we'll put in at verse 11, Acts 3, verse 11, and we read this. While he, the crippled man who had been healed, while he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, greatly amazed, ran towards them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. The people of Jerusalem knew this crippled man. We talked a lot about this last time. What was happening that day was an absolute shock to them. I mean, it was unfathomable. They hadn't seen anything like this, except for they had seen a lot of things like this. They had heard the stories of many people healed. Remember when Jesus was on the earth during his ministry, 
John the Apostle in his book says, you know, if you wrote down all the things that Jesus did, all the books in all the world wouldn't be able to contain all of those things. But this is an absolute shock, mind-blowing. But while they're astounded by the cripple, Peter is going to direct them to the Christ. Verse 12 continues, when Peter saw this, he addressed the people. You know, Peter shows a great readiness in this chapter. John 2, we talked about this last time, they're working together here, but it's Peter who's speaking, at least as Luke records it here. But Peter shows a great readiness in the chapter, and that's something that really shines through often in the book of Acts, in these wonderful stories that we remember of God using his people or God doing remarkable things. Uh, It's that God's people were ready for spiritual things to happen. It's not that they knew what was coming. You know, Peter didn't know that all of this was going to happen that day. Again, we saw this last time. They didn't plan to heal anybody that day. They weren't going out on a healing mission. He hadn't planned to teach a sermon there to a bunch of strangers in Solomon's colonnade, and he didn't know it was going to happen, but he was ready to minister. He was ready to preach about Jesus. And later, we're going to find that he and John were ready to suffer for the Lord if need be and to stand their ground when challenged to deny the Lord in front of the Sanhedrin. They were ready. And the disciples of Acts, one of their greatest, uh, one of their greatest examples to us is just their readiness. One of the themes that keeps coming up here is that they had very little plan. They were just being led by the Spirit and following the leading of the Lord, but they were ready, ready to hear from God, ready to follow God, ready to roll with what came their way. And Peter on this day, he was ready to preach a sermon. It was short and it was sweet. It was to the point. It was, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit who gave him a message to share, but he was ready and therefore he was able to be used. He says, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? From beginning to end, Peter's remarks are going to be very Jewish in theme. As he opens here, he calls them the men of Israel. He's talking to all Jews here. The first church in Jerusalem was all Jewish people. And uh, it's going to be a big deal when the first Gentiles get saved. And it's going to create a problem for some of the Christians who think, wait, is that allowed? Are Gentiles like you and me allowed to just get saved? And it's going to be uh, a, great, a great time. But here he's talking in the temple to the men of Israel, the people of Israel, descendants of Abraham. He calls them the men of Israel, reminding them of Israel, the nation founded by God himself. He was the founding father. They talk about Abraham being their father, but it was God who formed the nation of Israel. He's a God of miracles. They, unlike any other group, should have known the might and the plan of God. The fact that they were amazed and dumbstruck by the healing of a crippled person And apparently they were starting to whisper that Peter and John must have some sort of magical power or something. What's going on here? Well, really, that highlights just how far this group of people had drifted from where they should have been in relation to God. In this way, it's a very sad scene that we're witnessing because try to picture what we're seeing here. These are people who've come to worship their God in the temple, in his temple, the God of heaven and earth who founded their nation who led them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, right? Who worked all these wonders, not just through Moses, but throughout their history, overthrowing nations and raising people from the dead and working through the prophets and and stopping the sun in the sky. That's their God. They're in his temple. And they see this crippled man healed and they say, wow, we have no idea what's going on here. 
This is mind-blowing. Who could have thought anything like that ever could have happened? They're completely flabbergasted by something that should have been expected. You know, Peter's going to remind them of who God is and how he had prophesied that these sorts of things would indeed happen. And remember, Jesus had been doing these things in their midst for years and explaining how and why it was happening. But this group in the temple, well, they just couldn't make sense of it. It's really a far cry from someone like David. Remember, David, we look at some of his psalms, and what was David doing? He was just sitting alone in a field. He looked up at the stars. And because of his intimacy with God and because he was in communion with God, he could look up at the night sky and think, huh, the Lord works and he has personal care for me and he has a calling on my life and he wants to do things in my life and he's a God of power. He has a God who, he's a God who directs people individually. He thought, man, God's instructing me and showing me my calling and looking after me. And that's just him sitting in a field looking at the stars, right? And David, though, because his heart was dedicated to the Lord and because he was following the Lord and because he had real intimacy with God, he was able to understand these sorts of things. These Jews were seeing the literal fulfillment of prophecies that, th that had been given to them for hundreds of years, prophecies they knew, prophecies they'd read many times, and they see it being fulfilled right in front of their faces and they think, well, we have no idea what's going on. What's this about? What could this even mean? Verse 13, Peter says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. Now here Peter begins listing out a long rap sheet of atrocities that the men of Israel had committed against God and against his son. Even when a corrupt pagan cowardly governor like Pilate tried to free the clearly innocent Jesus at his illegal trial, the people forced his hand in order to have the Lord crucified on Calvary. Peter uses the term servant here not just as a descriptor, though it was. It's one of several messianic titles from the Old Testament prophets that he's using. Though his audience was clearly lacking in understanding, they did have a great deal of exposure to the scriptures. And so Peter was able to identify Jesus as the Savior they've been waiting for. He says, hey, the servant. And all of those faithful Jews in the temple complex that day would know that he's starting to reference the prophecies made about the Messiah, the Messiah that they said as a nation they were waiting for, waiting for, waiting for. And he says, yeah, yeah, he came. You, you, you murdered him. You remember that? <laughs> and so he uses this term on purpose there. Verse 14 he says, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. Holy and righteous one is another title for the Messiah that would have uh, sort of sparked in their minds. God's people, Israel, should have been able to recognize the Lord when he came. The Bible had made it clear where he would come from, what he would do, how to recognize him. Jesus himself proved that he was the Messiah through his teachings, through his countless miracles. He claimed to be God. That's one of the reasons why the leaders wanted him dead. It was out in the open. None of this secret Jesus stuff. Every now and then, even still today, you hear about some of these super weird cults, you know, other places in the world. And uh, I'm thinking of one in particular. I can't remember the name. I believe it's over in Asia somewhere. And the leader says, hey, I'm Jesus. Uh, but it's a lady, right? Isn't it a lady Jesus? Yeah, so she's a lady and she says, hey, you don't know it, but I'm Jesus. And you're like, wait a minute. 
you're not Jesus, but it's like, I'm secret Jesus. You didn't know it. You have to have me tell you. Jesus was out in the open. The scriptures were out in the open. It wasn't hidden away. It wasn't one of these things like the cults say, oh, hey, we got this secret revelation. You can't verify it. I don't have any of those documents. Take my word for it. Right? It was out in the open. Jesus said, yeah, look what I'm doing. Look at the works that I'm doing and listen to me preach. I'm saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. It was all out in the open. Yet instead of accepting him as king, they disowned him and requested a murderer in his place. And when you think about that, Jesus doing what he did, living the way he did, preaching the way he did, working his miracles, fulfilling all of these prophecies that were well uh, you know, established in their minds, and yet they said, no, give us the murderer instead. We think, well, that's crazy. That's crazy. How could they make a choice like that? But that's what happened. They chose death instead of life. And it still happens today. That's what human beings do. The Bible says man loves darkness rather than life. We choose death instead of life, right? It, it's in one sense sort of exemplified human nature by the pack of cigarettes, right? Have you seen the, the cigarettes over in the United Kingdom? They just have big skull and crossbones on them. This will kill you. It says that on there. And then, then what do people do? I'll, I'll have one of those. No, 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 not the skull and crossbones one. The one that says this will kill you. Yeah, that's the one I want. You know? And that is just an example of human nature. That human beings will, in many different ways, not just physically, but especially spiritually, are prone to choose death instead of life. This happens today. Thank God He saves us from ourselves. If we relinquish our lives to Him, He says, man, not only, not only am I going to save you from your enemies, not only am I going to save you from death and from hell, from the devil, I'm going to save you from yourself. I'm going to make you a new creation. I'm going to give you a new mind. You know what you need? A new mind to help you out with some of these things. Now, if you haven't noticed already, Peter is not pulling his punches. Like a good doctor, he's being frank about the fact that they have a fatal illness. You know, if you go to a doctor and you have a fatal illness, do you want him to pull his punches and say, well, you're sick, but I don't want you to feel bad about yourself. Right? No, you want your doctor to tell you the truth. Tell me what's going on. And more importantly, tell me what I can do about it. And so Peter, he's listing out the many charges on their rap sheet and exposing their guilt in the hopes that they will throw themselves on the mercy of the court. This is important because at its most essential level, Christianity, boiled all the way down, is not about having a better life or having a, you know, the most commendable philosophy uh, or the best culture. At the core, Christianity is about life and death, a choice between heaven and hell. It's about dealing with the guilt of sin and saving individuals from an eternity separated from God. That's what Christianity is about, boiled down. Now, of course, God throws in all these other things as well. He says, hey, not only am I going to grant you access into heaven, I'm going to give you my everlasting life right now. And I'm going to make you part of my body, and I'm going to include you in your work, and I'm going to gift you, and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to make you all of these promises. I'm going to do all of these things for you. Yes, the Lord wants to work in our relationships and work through our, you know, our earthly life and all of those sorts of things, but boiled down to its essence, Christianity is about life and death. It's about dealing with the guilt of sin. 
And because of that, Peter was presenting the reality of their guilt to this group. And you know what? His list wasn't even complete yet. Verse 15, you killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. The sermons of Acts always highlight the resurrection. It is the foundation of the Christian faith. Peter once again stands boldly as an eyewitness of the fact that Jesus was dead but is now alive. And really, think about the weight that that statement would carry in this situation. Try to imagine, if we can, probably none of us, maybe I'm mistaken, probably none of us have seen a cripple like this healed miraculously, right? But try to imagine for a moment that that exact thing happened. A paraplegic who you've maybe seen for 10, 15, 20 years, every time you went to a certain place, was suddenly healed, and not just healed a little bit, all the way together perfectly well. And you look, and he's standing next to this guy who healed him, at at least by the way that we look at it, the, the person through which he was healed. And you're looking at him, and he says, hey, I have something to say. I think we would all pay attention. I think we'd all listen up and say, hey, this guy just did the impossible, and now he's talking to me about God. And now he's talking to me about truth. And now he's talking to me about my life. That would come with a lot of weight to it because Peter was a real witness of Christ and it was clear that God was working through him, right? That was evident by what was happening. When God's power is actually evident in our lives, it gives incredible credibility to the message that we're sent out to proclaim. Now, I don't mean that we have to go around working miracles, Maybe God will use one of us or all of us or some of us someday to to work a healing. We believe God still heals. We believe God still delivers people from demon possession, those sorts of things. It doesn't happen certainly as often as we see it in the Gospels or in the book of Acts. But that can still happen. But God's power is still meant to be working through each and every one of us all the time. Miracles aren't the only exhibition of God's power, right? And here's, here's a practical example of that. I mean, if we're supposed to go out into the world with a message of heavenly hope, well, then we should be hopeful people. If I'm going out with a message of hope, but I have no evident hope in my life, well, then my message has very little weight, has very little gravity to it. Because people look at me and say, yeah, but you're not hopeful. If we're going out with a message uh, to talk about a God of grace and forgiveness, but we're not gracious and we're not forgiving, what's the good of our message? There's no weight behind it. But if we go out to talk to people or if people come and ask us something and say, hey, my life's falling apart, and we say, well, let me talk to you about your life. Let me talk to you about Jesus Christ and his power to transform a life. And people look at you and realize that you're a person of peace and you're a person of hope and you're a person who shows selfless love to others and you're a person who honors their spouse and you're a person who does these things, who lives in a way that is contrary to the natural human mind because God's power is actually being exercised through you, well, that's going to carry an incredible amount of weight. And I'm sure most of you have experienced this as some family member or friend or coworker or whatever. They come to you and they're desperate because things are going on in their life and they say, man, I'm at the end of my rope. You seem like the kind of person that has an answer. You know why? Because your life is carrying weight as God is working through you. And that's the idea. 
We're called to be witnesses of what has happened in our lives, what we've seen, right? Witnesses like Peter. We're called to be witnesses, not theorists. Plenty of theorists out there. Well, if you do this, this might happen. Has that happened in your life? No, but maybe you could give it a try. No, we're called to be witnesses. Our lives and the transformation God is continually working in us should be proving the reliability of our message. Our lives are meant to prove the truth of what God says. Verse 16, by faith in his name, his name has made this man strong whom you see and you know. So the faith that comes through him has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. It's interesting, the crowd had gathered because this miracle had happened in their midst. Proof of that miracle was currently clinging on to Peter. Thank you for none of you clinging on to me as I try to deliver this Bible study. I wouldn't wouldn't appreciate it. So they gathered to see the miracle, because a miracle had happened, they're looking at this guy and everything, you know, here's the man that the miracle happened to. But Peter spends very little time even referencing him or even talking about this miracle, right? Instead, what does Peter do? He's just demanding throughout the speech that they focus their thoughts on Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, and the truth of Scripture, things that they should have known as people of God's Word, right? On the issues of sin and repentance and resurrection and faith, that's what he's focusing on. You know, sometimes Christians can become fixated on experiential spirituality. I want to feel something. I want to feel emotions. I want to feel like something happened, and I'll call that spirituality. And then their spiritual lives become a constant pursuit of manifestations of one kind or another. But you know, the Christians in Acts, they didn't chase manifestations or feelings. We never see that. We just don't. Now, they pursued the Lord, and they pursued His truth. And in the meantime, God was doing very real and very wonderful things in their midst. And we, of course, want God to be working in dramatic ways in our lives and around our lives and in our gatherings and in our church. Of course, we want that. And the Lord wants to do those things as well. He wants to work. He wants to show himself faithful. He wants to show himself strong. But our part is to focus on Christ and his word and his truth and to live obediently to how he's leading. To be full of faith does not mean to chase after certain spiritual emotions, but instead to trust in the Lord and to be in step with what he wants to be doing in our lives. We notice also that it was not worthiness that won this man healing that day. It wasn't effort. It wasn't entitlement. It wasn't merit. It wasn't that his number came up. We thought a little bit about this last week. We can't know the mind of God and why this man on this day at this time was granted a miraculous healing, but it wasn't because he had somehow earned it. It wasn't because he somehow was better than the next cripple on the street. I say that to just encourage all of us who are praying for ourselves or loved ones or different situations of suffering. I'm sure all of us know someone who we've been praying, Lord, would you heal this person? Would you stop their suffering. You know, this man had waited more than 40 years to be healed. And we don't know why the timing worked out the way it did. We know that God loves. We know that God still heals. We know that God has told us in the New Testament to pray for healing and for the end of suffering. In the meantime, we shouldn't think that God withholds healing because we're unworthy in his eyes. Rather, we can fortify ourselves with the knowledge that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, 
as we wait on him. Verse 17, and now brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance just as your leaders also did. Now, this is a remarkable verse, especially after reading that long list of severe accusations. As Peter says, here's what you did, and you did this, and you did this, and you did this, and you did this, and they were atrocities. They were the worst thing that people could ever do. You murdered the source of life. You killed the Son of God. You butchered him on a Roman cross. And then we get to verse 17. Peter first identifies with them, right? He says, in this verse, not just you, he says, hey, brothers, we're a family together. And then he, with the Holy Spirit, extends them incredible grace, saying, you didn't realize what you were doing. It's exactly what Christ said from the cross. They know not what they do. Not just the people in general, but the leadership also. He says, you're leaders. They didn't know what they were doing. And that's pretty amazing because when I read the gospels, it sure seems like they knew what they were doing, right? Read them, we see them hatching a conspiracy to murder an innocent man because of jealousy and because of pride and because of, you know, the sin that they were steeped in. But God's grace sees it another way. He says, you know, you don't know what you're doing. Sadly, these same leaders that are getting such a dose of grace from God, they're not going to return grace back to his disciples here. Verse 18, but what God predicted through the mouth of all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. You know, Peter loved to talk prophecy. It's only the second sermon we have recorded, but in the first one, he talked prophecy as well. It's clear he took prophecy literally and he took it seriously. And as he did in his first sermon, he's going to not only highlight the prophecies that were literally fulfilled in Christ's first coming, he's then going to pivot to talk about the yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecies that concern the Lord's second coming, and he's going to treat them the same way. Verse 19, therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out and that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The call to action was the same as his first sermon and would be the same all the way through to Christ's letters to the seven church in, churches in Revelation. Repent. If you want to be right with God, if you want seasons of refreshing, another word for it is revival, well, then our part is simple. We need to repent. Repentance is not simply saluting God, not simply casting a vote for God. It means to faithfully agree and to go His way, to turn to Him and say, God, you're right. I've been wrong. I'm going to abandon the other path and go with you. Remember, God wants to be followed. When Jesus would go around, what did he say to the disciples? He said, follow me. Not vote for me, not affiliate with me, not salute me. He says, follow me. And so to repent means that we go with him, forsaking all other paths. Verse 20, and that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must welcome him until the times of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from the beginning. Here's a hint here of what Peter would suggest later in his second letter that he wrote. He says that we can actively participate in the hastening of uh, Christ's return to the earth. How that all works out, we're not quite sure. But Peter is hinting about it here and says it outright in his epistle. And if and it's Christ's return that we see here that will ultimately solve all the problems that need solving in the world. He says, hey, listen, if you want the restoration of all things, the answer is for Jesus Christ to come back. He's the one that wipes every tear from every eye. He's the one that's gonna make right what we've done wrong. He's the one that's gonna restore this world. All human efforts to fix the problems of life and the problems of the world are at best 
just makeshift attempts to fix what can only truly be mended by the Redeemer. That doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean we don't participate. But as Christians, we know that, hey, the real fix is Jesus Christ coming back to restore all things. Now, remember, Jesus, uh, Peter is speaking specifically to a Jewish audience about the Jewish people at large. God's plan is not just for individuals to be saved, but for Israel as a nation to be saved as well. That's a significant aspect of the Great Tribulation. Though the nation rejected Jesus, and though the nation will refuse this offer from Peter as well, one day we know from Bible prophecy all Israel will be saved. We know that God has not forgotten his special people. Now, before we move on, one more thought I found encouraging. We sometimes talk about the love of God and say he loved us so much he was willing to leave heaven to save us. And that's true. What a wonderful sentiment. But I was realizing here, we're being reminded that he loves us so much he's going to leave heaven again. He left heaven once to come to the earth, to be born as a baby, live a perfect sinless life, die on a cross in my place, rise from the dead. He went back to heaven. And what's he going to do? He says, let's go back down to that earth again. I love him so much. I'm going to go spend a thousand years with them down there. And then we can be together forever in eternity. How great is God's love for us? Verse 22, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him and everything he will say to you. And everyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. The Jews reading their scriptures had come to the conclusion that there were two figures they were waiting for, the Messiah and a second figure, the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. In fact, that mindset, that belief pops up a few times in the Gospels. However, here Peter explains that they are one and the same. Jesus, the prophet, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the suffering servant. He's identifying Jesus as all of these uh, figures, the figure from Old Testament prophecy. Now, it's interesting, in the tribulation, what are we going to see? When Satan sends his counterfeit to deceive Israel, what does he do? He sends two figures. He sends the Antichrist, the false Messiah, and he sends the false prophet, and Israel will accept them for a time. But twice Peter references their need to listen to the Lord Jesus. Do we listen to him today? Comedian Jim Gaffigan hilariously points out how little we listen to doctors, right? Doctors tell us things all the time. Yeah, we don't care about that. You know, they tell us things like, hey, you need to exercise 30 minutes a day or you're going to get heart disease. I'm not going to do that. Hey, you're all sitting too much. You're going to kill yourself from sitting too much at your desk. Yeah, I'm not going to stand. No, you guys need to, you know, avoid electronics before bed. Yeah, we're not going to do that either. You know, these doctors are coming and saying, hey, we're trying to help you here. Yeah, we're not going to listen to any of that. But what about the Lord? Are we listening to what he said? about our mindset, about our decisions, about his commands. Moses would say to us tonight, you must listen to him and everything he will say to you. Verse 24, in addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also announced these days. While we can't always anticipate God's timing or specific method, he's been quite upfront about his plan for the world Peter was convinced you could go to the scriptures, especially prophecy, and make sense of what was going on in the world. And we should be doing the same thing so we can avoid making the same types of mistake Israel had made as a people. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God had made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. 
These people of Israel had the heritage and the prophecy and much more, which should have been a great spiritual advantage to them. As Peter closes, he reminds them of their national calling. They were supposed to be God's instrument of blessing to the world. Instead, they had gone their own way, and now God was trying yet again to turn them back and save them from themselves. Peter's wording reminds us that to be turned from sin is not only a necessary thing, it's a blessing. You know, not only does God want to pull people out of the crushing rubble of sin, He wants to bless them by freeing them and giving them new life and providing real satisfaction and purpose and peace and all of these things. It's a blessing to be set free from sin. It was a Jewish sermon, but there's still plenty of power here to stir us up on the eve of whatever battle might lay ahead for each of us. First, we want to follow the example of the disciples and be Christians who are ready, ready to be used by God, ready to tell the truth of his word to people. It's all too easy for us to just let life happen to us, right? We get busy, we get distracted, and it's just easy to let life happen to us. But Peter and Paul would both later write about living in such a way where you're ready to serve God, ready to be a conduit for his power, ready to see when he's moving and go with him and be used in wonderful ways for his purposes. Second, we want to be true witnesses whose testimony is credible because of actual power working in us, God's real power. There's a great story in the biography of Gladys Aylward. At one point, she's a missionary in China at the turn of the century, and she's in this crazy remote village, and they have a prison there. There's a prison riot. The prisoners are killing each other. And so the governor of the region, he calls to her. She's just this lady, this British lady living by herself, trying to serve the Lord. He says, go ahead and go in there and stop the riot, please. And she says, what are you talking about? He's like, go stop the riot. He's like, I can't stop the riot. He says, well, don't you have the living God living in you? And this guy's not a Christian. He's like a Buddhist. He says, well, you say you have the living God living in you, and so you can't die. And she says, well, you think I can't die? And, he's, and he says, well, you have the living God living in you. And she realizes, I have to go in there. <laughs> and so she does, and then God uses her to stop this right and change all of these lives and everything like that. But that's the perfect example. Hey, you say you have the living God living inside of you. Is that true? Yeah. Okay, do you have any power? We should. We should be people who are experiencing the work of God in and through us. And then finally, are we listening to Jesus Christ? Not in part, but in whole. He's the source of life. He loves us. He's coming back. He speaks to us through his word. He has revealed much and blessed us with a wonderful heritage and rich supply and all sorts of advantages here in the United States. Anyone who listens to him and follows is wise, the Bible says, like a person who builds their house on solid rock. And those are people who God can command to do wonderful things in his ongoing liberation of this needy world. Amen?